Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs, and great to have you with us on The Great America Show. Disturbing developments in Europe tied directly to NATO's somewhat late effort to bring Finland and Sweden into the alliance, and the dangling prospects still of Ukraine joining as well. Putin isn't waiting to see what Europe is about to do. Instead, he has Europe worrying about what lies in store for them. Despite all the bravado from EU leaders, Russia is now holding a considerable advantage, and that is energy supplies. The Russians just shut down the main gas pipeline from Russia to Germany for regularly scheduled maintenance. So now the Europeans are asking themselves, when will Putin open up the pipeline once again? And what other hardships could he have in store for Europe? Putin wasn't being at all subtle last week when he put Russia's new so-called doomsday submarine on display. How's that for a name? Doomsday submarine. The submarine is capable of carrying six 80-foot-long torpedoes, each armed with a nuclear warhead of up to 100 megatons of destructive power. The Europeans are understandably anxious these days, while President Biden, in the judgment of Congressman Darrell Issa, is seemingly intent on giving Putin whatever he wants, that is, Ukraine. And remember, it was the Obama-Biden White House that allowed Putin to invade and annex Crimea without response from the United States or Europe. So who is Biden working for these days besides his puppet masters? He's destroyed the southern border with Mexico. He's given the Mexican drug cartels control of both sides of the border. He's distributing illegal immigrants all over this country in the dead of night. So no one will know who's in the country or doing who knows what. He's compromised with China, with Ukraine, and Russia. Will he turn over eastern Ukraine to Putin? Or will he turn over all of Ukraine? His administration is going after parents, any who question left-wing indoctrination in our schools, CRT, ESG, going after January 6th demonstrators like they had burned down the same number of stores, tried to destroy federal courthouses, or assaulted dozens of police officers, just like Antifa and the BLM rioters and arsonists did in the summer of 2020. But, of course, the left never prosecuted Antifa and BLM. And now the left is publicly displaying its contempt for America. It all marks a new low point for law and order and respect for this country. To take all of this up and more, our guest today is the senior editor-at-large for Breitbart News, Joel Pollack. Great to have you with us, Joel. Welcome back. The left, Joel, trying hard to take this country further left hard left than would have been imaginable five years ago. Your thoughts? Well, it is not just the left, unfortunately, although I suppose for many national public radio would signify the left, but in in theory, at least, it is a common resource for all Americans. And NPR decided to get rid of their annual reading of the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July. They just had a panel discussion about equality. 
instead of reading the Declaration of Independence. So whether attacking our country's founding or simply ignoring it, the left has decided that America is just not worth celebrating. And, you know, this goes back to the Obamas. When Barack Obama was elected, a lot of us with some experience, some exposure to the left, I had come from the far left at Harvard before I became a conservative. Those of us with some exposure to this were very worried about where Obama came from. He had a sort of moderate facade, but there were little remarks that he made and that Michelle Obama made. Remember when Michelle Obama said that once Obama was winning the Democratic primary in 2008, that she was finally proud of America, that for the first time in her adult life, she was proud of the country. Most of us are proud of our country. Right. Most of us are proud of our country, regardless of whether our favorite political party is winning or not. But for the left, it just isn't that way. They refuse to accept America as it is. The America they are proud of is the America they want to turn it into. They have this utopian vision that America would be worth loving if it did what all the left-wing activists wanted to do, if this country could somehow follow that radical path. But as it is, they refuse to accept America. Obama would not defend American exceptionalism, for example, would not be proud of America. And although Joe Biden is not cut, right, he was not. And and, and Biden is not cut from the same ideological cloth, but he's gone along with that. So I I think it, it is striking, but this has been a long time coming, almost 15 years now that we've seen the left move in this direction. And, you know, you can't convince people to love something. So I don't know how we convince the left to change their mind, but I do think we can make it unacceptable for people to bash America on the 4th of July. I mean, I think there's got to be a political price to pay, to pay for that. Well, and NPR, and not to quibble, but it's left wing. Uh, it's, uh, it's structure, uh, it's uh, purpose, uh, it, it's uh, expression, whether it's in news or whether it be in uh, its programming. Uh, it's decidedly left, it's publicly funded, and as you say, a common source but most common uh, in, in that uh, source is the left and liberal thought. Uh, it was anti-Trump, uh, absolutely, emphatically so. Uh, so I, I, I guess I, my question bears on why you think of NPR as something. Uh, it, the inference was that you think of it as almost something neutral rather than left wing. NPR is interesting because although it is left wing and it's content is very left-wing and its donors are left-wing. You know, they had me on NPR after Trump won in 2016, and they wanted to know about Steve Bannon at the time because people were very interested in him. And I went on the air with Steve Inskeep on Morning Edition, and I pushed back on some of their questions, and I raised an objection to one of the regular features they have on NPR called Code Switch, which is a program almost exclusively devoted to race. And I said, why must my taxpayer dollars fund racial programming? I said, you know, this is basically racist programming. So you're accusing people like Steve Bannon of racism. You don't know anything about him. But yet you have this racial programming here on NPR. Well, that threw a spanner into the works. And then the public editor or the ombudsman of NPR recommended that after my interview, they never allow another conservative to be interviewed live because they wanted to be able to counter whatever the conservative said on the air. I mean, it caused such a stir among readers, the fact that I, or among listeners, that I'd done that. And, right. and I haven't been on NPR since. But the weird thing about NPR is that if you drive through rural areas of the country or you live in a rural community, the local public radio station is actually a very important source of information. 
there aren't that many terrestrial radio stations in large parts of the country. And so, oddly, we have a conservative community in many cases dependent on this liberal outlet for information about what's going on in the country. Now, of course, with the Internet, people are less dependent on radio, but that's Thankfully so. always been – yeah, it's always been difficult to defund NPR at the national level because there are so many rural communities that depend on their local public radio stations. So NPR I, is a very strange phenomenon. Joel, I don't mean to be in a contrary mood here, but as, a, <laughs> as an agrarian myself, I, like I, I live on a farm. I, I, I okay. came from uh, the agrarian West, uh, and I have to say, uh, the idea that somehow NPR is filling a, a void in the airwaves, uh, to me is, you know, that sounds like uh, a week of uh, fundraising for NPR or public television, <laughs> because it's it's really nonsensical, uh, if I may be direct. Uh, there is nothing, nothing about the conservatives uh, in the West or the East or the North or the South uh, that they will find uplifting uh, in the programming of public television or, uh, or uh, excuse me, not the programming, but the news uh, and editorial content of NPR or public television. Uh, it just isn't there. Uh, and they are, we are spending taxpayer dollars to listen to the, to the likes of uh you know, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Joe Biden, uh, these are not uh, unique and uh, fascinating minds uh, editorially on NPR. They're left-wingers. Well, I'm going to reveal a little bit about my employment history here, but I first got my job. I got my first internship, I should say, in, in journalism at an NPR affiliate in Alaska. So I was way out in in a very rural state where a lot of local communities had one radio station or two. And there there was an awareness among the NPR staff in Alaska that their audience had different views than they did. Uh, One of the senior reporters at that station told me. How long ago was this? This was in the 90s. It was in the (laughs) mid-90s. One of the guys there, I, I think on my first day, the first day I showed up to work, he said to me, one of the phrases you're going to have to learn to get used to hearing is, the liberals don't want you to know that. That's what you're going to hear a lot of. That's what he said to me. <laughs> well, so there was this tension between the reporters and their audience, but th- there was a sense in which people in Alaska, I think, even on, on the conservative side of the spectrum, you know, understood that NPR ha- had some value, even if, as you point out, it wasn't on their side. Well, so I this- think people are, are yeah. As they say in the craft, we're adrift here, but it's a fascinating <laughs> drift for you and for me because of our, you know, our history in journalism, uh, and uh, because of our our fascination with media. But the fact is, there is no reason in the world to put up with a tension between the views of NPR and their communities they serve. There should be no tension whatsoever. There should be a representation. Well, you know, the left always wants to talk about diversity. It's pure nonsense. They never want to talk about the diversity of ideology or philosophy. Uh, you know, they're palpable, uh, you know, frauds. Uh, and I think throughout. Uh, it, it's just uh, well, NPR. You're it's right. A that travesty. NPR, and, 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 I mean, think about this. Can you imagine this country? Right. 
having a public conservative television network uh, that's supported by taxes, do you think the left would tolerate that crap for one minute? It's it's idiocy. It's madness. <laughs> it, it is madness. So, you know, I actually wanted to write a book about how NPR became so left wing. And, <laughs> you know, I was told by a conservative publisher, we like your idea, but we think people already have an opinion about NPR and they're not going to want to read more about it. But it is a fascinating story how it became taken over by the left. It wasn't conceived that way. I think it launched in 1971 under the Nixon administration. It, uh-huh. it really was not initially conceived of as a liberal project. But you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that prevents NPR from reflecting the views of its audience more accurately is that they are insulated from market pressures by the taxpayer money. Exactly. The other thing that taxpayer money does is it crowds out alternatives that might otherwise want to play the role NPR plays but provide a conservative editorial perspective rather than the liberal left one that NPR provides. But so I think but about I, I'm this, just saying Joel. it's a shame that a national – sorry, the, 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 the reason I brought it up was just it's so striking that they used to read the Declaration of Independence, and now even that is unacceptable to national taxpayer-funded public radio. Now, you talked initially about the utopian vision uh, of, uh, you know, of the left uh, in, in public broadcasts. To me, it's a dystopian uh, ideal that they have uh, uh, immersed themselves in. Uh, and which, you know, they peddle daily. But the interesting thing is that used to be the argument that, you know, it was providing something that wasn't available. But my God, you think back to 1972, Nixon, ABC, CBS, uh, NBC, all were left wing uh, in atmospherics and, in fact, in their newsrooms. They couldn't be as open. You talk about attention, the tension of the left in that newsroom in uh, New York. Uh, and Washington, D.C., with the audience that was the American public at that time. Uh, Think about it now. The NPR has to work hard to be more left-wing than ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, and so forth, don't you think? Yeah. Look, and and also the the public funding, as others have pointed out, keeps out competition. So, you know, media ought to welcome competition. Because more divo- more voices are always better than fewer voices. That was Andrew Breitbart's philosophy. He always wanted more competition, more people in the space. He didn't see it as a threat to Breitbart.com. He thought it as he, he thought it was a boon to media as a whole. And look, as you say, we are far afield. I, I'm I'm just astonished that there's so much acceptance, even among again a taxpayer-funded organization like NPR. There's so much acceptance for the idea somehow that this country and its founding are bad. And you know, they're damn I think fools. People are sh- I mean, there comes a point where yeah. it's not even a philosophical discussion. We are dealing with a group of Marxist Democrats who have taken control of the Democrat Party. This this is one of the things that kind of uh, I, I find bewildering uh, is that very bright, capable, experienced people don't want to confront the reality that we face in this country. Uh, when you look at all of the newsrooms in the country that are left-wing versus those that are right-wing, there are a handful that are conservative. And the conservatives, Republicans, and independents make up the preponderance of the voting and viewing public. This is not about uh, competition because competition doesn't exist. 
We have an oligopoly in media, just as we have an oligopoly uh, in uh, big pharma. Uh, You go through the list. We have to deal with the world we've got. Uh, And it's really uh, important that everybody understand that. These are Marxist Dems driving the entire Democrat Party and in league with the deep state, the permanent bureaucracy, if you will. There's never been a point in our history where the FBI and the Department of Justice were decidedly, pointedly, and publicly, and uh, obviously left-wing and in absolute league with one one party. And here it is. What do you think? No, I I agree with that. And and yet on the 4th of July, it just never ceases to be shocking that that's where we are. So it, it is a bad place to be. And Jonathan Turley, who's a liberal, but often features in conservative commentary because he has a very clear-eyed view of the Constitution, he commented that what NPR was doing was hacking away at the few bonds that still unite Americans left and right. And when you start saying that the Declaration of Independence is, is not something you want to recite anymore or share with listeners, then you're really damaging the country. You're not damaging your well, political opponents. You're damaging yourself as part of the, the, well, the broader the, nation. The, you know, I'll, I'll just say it this way. The hell with those liberal selves. Uh, what I'm worried about are our children. I'm worried about the, the education that is uh, indoctrination uh, toward the left. And people want to blithely go about uh, living their lives without attending to the realities that could ultimately be determinate in what kind of republic uh, it is we have that we lose to the Marxist Dems, because that is their end. I mean, it's our it's taxpayer-funded destruction, if you will. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it, and and it, it actually NPR, interestingly enough, NPR has said. I'm going to get you off this NPR action. jag. <laughs> Yeah, you know, James O'Keefe did did that great sting about a decade ago where he recorded the senior leadership of NPR. And and one of the things they said in the undercover video was they admitted they can get by without public funding, that they have actually begun to plan for a future without it. So, look, maybe there's potential for that in in some future Republican. But again, I say to you, I don't care. Our audience doesn't care. If NPR withered, died, and uh, just simply crumble to ashes right now, uh, assuming I'm not talking about the people, I'm talking about the enterprise, uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't give a whit. And, and there is no reason to because there is no redeeming value in what they do editorially. They could exist as a programming unit, which would have a great, uh, you know, cultural uh, still bias, but that's acceptable to me in, if it is intellectually uh, rewarding. Uh, and, and educationally, right. but the rest of it, right. th- that's nonsense, and we've got to accept that. I, I want to turn to, uh, if we may, that turn to the left that we're hearing when, uh, you know, you know, people are saying, you know, uh, all sorts of profanities around uh, Independence Day, the Fourth of July, when they, when the left again is uh, bemoaning a, a Supreme Court decision that, on its face, intellectually. They understand intellectually, I'm sure, that textualists are, are, are the rationalist in law, and they are, are the, the activists uh, and, and acting outside the law. 
Don't you agree with that? They do. They understand that originalism is a more legitimate view. And that's why even some of the smarter people on the left have tried to put their arguments for abortion or climate change regulation when it comes to the court. They've tried to put it in originalist terms. They just understand it's a much more convincing argument than simply saying, we want liberal justices to legislate from the bench and act as a super legislature that can merely bring about our desired left-wing policy priorities. So the smarter ones are in agreement that originalism is a better philosophy. They have no alternative. And yet they're saying that the Supreme Court has somehow undermined America by ruling the way it has in several recent rulings. I see a lot of these comments around, you know, and they ignore the cases where the Supreme Court went the other way. The Supreme Court did not agree with conservatives for whatever reason. I mean, look at the, the case involving the Remain in Mexico policy. The Supreme Court upheld Joe Biden's decision, like it or not, they upheld his decision to end Trump's Remain in Mexico policy. They said, look, this is something that's within the executive power to do. Yeah. I think the outcome is wrong. I think Biden should have kept the Remain in Mexico policy. Oh, it's a matter says, of policy. It's a matter of policy, yeah, not yeah. a matter of law. Right. I don't think it makes the court illegitimate because they went the wrong way, but that's how the left views it. And, and I think they're at odds with themselves, but they're, odd, they're at odds with themselves in another way, Lou, which is that they aren't moving to other countries. This is the best country in the world to live in easily. It's not even close. And for all the talk that we hear every four years that if some Republican, fill in the blank, wins the presidency, they're going to move to Canada. Nobody ever moves to Canada. And they don't move to Canada unless they're, you know, avoiding the draft in the 1970s or something. But you know, no, nobody ever moves to Canada because America's amazing. You know, you can, you can get a lot of the same stuff in Canada, but Canada is not as free as the United States. And, not you know, close. If, if you go to Canada, you, what's that? I said it's not even close. Not even close, right. So, look. People who are bashing this country do so from the position of comfort and luxury. You know, it's like George Orwell used to say the same thing about British pacifists. He said, well, you can be a pacifist if you're wealthy enough to avoid having to live in a bomb shelter. And if you're far enough away from the fighting that someone else has to do it for you, yeah, you can be a pacifist. You have that luxury. You're, you're enjoying the security and comfort that other people's sacrifices are giving you. But if you're close to the fight and you have anything at stake, there's no way you're a pacifist. All of us would like to avoid war, but we have to fight this war to be a free country. And it's the same thing when it comes to America. The idea that America is bad and that we have to fix it with all of this identity politics or redistribution or renewable energy or whatever the cause of the day is, those are beliefs that are the luxuries of prosperity. I, you know, I tried to explain to somebody why I'm not a socialist. I said, I'm not wealthy enough to be a socialist. You can only indulge certain views if you don't have to worry about who's paying the bills. If you're right. so wealthy that or there's suffering no consequences. The consequences. Right, right. So this is, this is the issue with the left. They say all this horrible stuff about America, but they love living here. They won't admit it. They may not even know it consciously, but this is the place that is, is best for them to live, where, where they can make a living even. Look at uh, that, that fellow who writes about anti-racism. His name escapes my mind for the moment. But he gets paid tens of thousands of dollars every time he speaks at a college about how racist we are. What a country where you can get paid by these supposed racists. Well, look, 
and, look at all and the, to, look to at tell all them the how racist they are. We're talking about uh, some of the policy um, quandaries that this nation <laughs> and crises that we find ourselves in. Uh, none more so, really, than planning for a future. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, utopian ideals. Uh, there are in utopian ideals always a corollary, and that is dystopia itself. And it looks to me like in many ways, whether it's energy policy or whatever, uh, that's what we may be headed for, unintended consequences. We are not a serious country. We are not having serious conversations about how to plan for our future. And in South Africa, which I just returned from, I saw a little glimpse of our, our possible future. South Africa has run out of electricity and they're years away from a solution because it takes time to build power plants. But in the two decades since they had the cheapest power on earth, which was just 20 years ago, back in 2000, 2001, in those two decades, instead of invest, investing scarce capital resources in building more power plants, they were investing that same capital in economic redistribution. They were allowing the ruling party to appoint its cronies to key positions in the power company and other utilities. They were using aggressive affirmative action policies to push out qualified engineers. And they're reaping, unfortunately, the consequences of doing all that. Now, here in the United States, we don't have quite the same issues, but we're also seeing a shortage of power generating capacity because we're in this headlong rush toward green energy before it is ready. Here in California, two summers ago, we had rolling blackouts because the solar energy and the wind energy failed during overcast and calm conditions that happened also to be in the middle of a heat wave. So people had the air conditioning on, but the wind wasn't blowing and the sun wasn't shining, and we ran out of electricity. We also had a natural gas plant that was offline, and, and we don't have enough backups. In Texas, just six months after that, there were those infamous blackouts when the wind turbines froze in the middle of a cold snap. We need to have fossil fuel as part of the mix. Biden is shutting it down. California is shutting it down. And even conservative states like Texas are investing heavily in green energy without providing the same or necessary investments in fossil fuels, which we still have a lot of, especially coal and things like that. We are pursuing this green agenda at the cost of power. And I have to tell you, when you don't have power, when you don't have electricity, the fuels you have to turn to are much worse for the environment than coal. I mean, we went to the mall in, in Johannesburg, just as an example, and they lost power 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. They had to start their diesel generators. And I had to lead my family through the parking lot and out the door through the diesel smoke. I mean, that stuff is, is much worse than burning coal at a distant power plant. And South Africa has made that choice. This was predictable. It was predicted. Here in the United States, we are sitting with similar problems, not just with electricity, but with water. We're in the middle of an extreme drought here in California, and Colorado River's in all kinds of trouble. Lake Mead is about 150 feet away from being what they call a, a dead lake, basically. Uh, a dead pool. Or, you know, not dead biologically, but yes, it's a dead pool. It's, it's basically not going to be able to power the turbines for Hoover Dam. Now, they're blaming climate change, but that's a cop-out. That's an excuse for planners who have failed to provide adequate infrastructure for our water needs. Here in California, we haven't built a major reservoir in 40 years. 
We are turning down desalination plants when they're proposed. The, the California Coastal Commission rejected a desalination plant in May because they didn't like the idea that a private company would own the water. Well, let me tell you something. When you run out of water, the only way to get it is privately. You have to sink a borehole in your backyard, and I hope that you can afford what it costs to do that. So you have to become your own water supplier. And, and that's, that's the irony. I don't think people are taking the cost of these decisions into account when they decide to go for green this and green that, and they decide they don't want a dam, and they don't want a reservoir, and so forth. We have to be a serious country. We have to be adults. Being human and surviving in the comfort to which we've become accustomed, and really, it's not just about comfort. It's about providing, in some cases, for basic needs. I mean, when the power goes out, what do you do at hospitals? What do you do in, in emergency services or, or home security? I mean, these are essential services. We need electricity to run them. We need water. Water is the essence of life. We, we have to be adults and recognize there are environmental costs to some of these things, but the cost of not having them is so much worse. Uh, it, it is, and it's clearly so. Uh, they've been warning about in California for at least a half century about the prospect that is at, at hand right now, and that is the, the, the Colorado River no longer being able to support the population that has grown up around it. And by around it, I'm referring, of course, to Nevada, to Arizona, to California primarily. And uh, when you go upriver, those people are not going to give up their water uh, for the benefit of a, uh, you know, a, a, a glitzy uh, Malibu uh, you know, uh, uh, village uh, or Pacific Palisades or wherever it may be. It's just not going to happen. They're going to keep their water, and then there will be court battles and everything else. But they, those battles are already, uh, they're really already fought and won. Uh, upriver wins, downriver loses. And that includes Mexico, by the way. Right. And, and yet, you know, we have a situation right now where the drought is natural, but the scarcity is human. We could have more water. We could have enough water for our needs if we understood that, yes, this is an arid climate or, or semi-arid climate. These are dry states historically over many centuries. We, we've had a very dry climate here. It was different. The, the century between the mid-19th and early 20th century was wetter than usual, and maybe that led to some expectations that turned out not to be true. But whether you think it's climate change or not, we have to plan for a better future. It doesn't just mean imposing conservation on households, and it doesn't mean turning almond fields into just empty, fallow fields. I mean, we, we can't continue to do that. We have to expand the supply of water. We have the technology to do it. We have desalination. We have reservoirs that can be environmentally friendly. We can do all this. Instead, we're pursuing this green agenda, and nobody is being honest with the public about what it means. It's not green not to have electricity. When you don't have electricity to heat your home, you will heat it with wood, you'll heat it with diesel, you'll heat it with things that are much worse for the environment than the natural gas-fired power plant that Eric Garcetti is trying to phase out here in Los Angeles, or the nuclear power plant that Democrats want to get rid of up in Diablo Canyon. I mean, we, we need these things to keep ourselves going, and we have the technology to do it. This is all preventable. But somehow our leaders, particularly in the blue states, but, but also in other places, our leaders are not taking seriously the yeah. task of remaining the world's leading economy. And, and, and really, they're not being honest with us about what our needs are going to be in the future. I, you know, I have to say I'm shocked to, to hear you say that you don't have serious leaders. You've got Gavin Newsom as governor. 
You've got uh, George Soros's uh, prosecuting attorneys, district attorneys in San Francisco and Los Angeles. So the boon is great, and uh, the <laughs> and the positivity just has to the the vibes have to be uh, uh, powerful there in California. Uh, it, it's a farce that is uh, it, that produces this these uh, unserious leaders, as you were saying, uh, because you can afford it. You're talking about the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, you can afford to have uh, play, uh, play toys like uh, uh, George Soros and his prosecutors and Gavin Newsom and his, uh, you know, narcissistic uh, ambitions. I, I mean, but the reality is California is on the brink uh, and it lives on the brink, whether it's natural disasters or whether it's man-made, it seems. California lives on the brink, and, and yeah, we can't do anything about earthquakes yet. So, okay, that's part of the risk of living here. You can get earthquake insurance. You can have the right kind of engineering. But we don't need to be short of water every few years. And there's a failure of leadership here. I mean, Gavin Newsom, let's take another problem, wildfires. We have these wildfires, some of which are natural, but we have wildfires partly because of bad infrastructure and partly because people have built homes deep into forests. And, and, and okay. But Newsom promised that he was going to invest some huge amount of money in clearing dead trees and clearing fuel from some of these forests, and he hadn't done it as of last year. And this is not being reported by me. It's being reported by public radio, you know, to come back to, come back to where we were at the beginning. The local public radio reporters dug into this and found that Newsom was you breaking his in, promise to deal with the, the fire problem. You are intractable. You are absolutely relentless on public radio. Uh, and poor public radio. Now you're blaming them. I, I, I can see the headlines. Uh, Joel Pollack uh, on NPR. It's, it's going to be uh, a rough time. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation, Joel, as always. Thanks for being here. Uh, we always give our guests the last word, and you can choose any subject you wish. Uh, any thoughts uh, you would like to share, on, whether it be NPR uh, upon the the 200, well, it's a 500 year drought. It seems, at least at this point, maybe longer, or perhaps shorter, uh, or, or a a left wing uh, that is uh, absolutely trashing America. Well, let me say this: I think that around the world, there's a sense people have that things are falling apart, that there's no leadership, and when a tragedy happens. Really, tragedy is the wrong word, but when something like the mass shooting at Highland Park happens, and I, and I grew up near there. I grew up in Skokie, which is just down the road from Highland Park. Uh, when something like that happens, we're told that if you offer thoughts and prayers, that that's somehow insulting because the left thinks that legislation and regulation and gun control are what solve the problem. Mm-hmm. We mock thoughts and prayers at our peril because prayer is the one thing that we have that reminds us, number one, that there's a higher authority to whom we all have to answer, and number two, that we have things in common, that even if we worship differently and so forth, there's a commonality we have as Americans that we can express, even if it's not in prayer, in a moment of quiet reflection or whatever. And we've lost that. We, we've eliminated it from our schools. We've, we've eliminated it from a lot of public events. And I think that this country needs that again. I think that we need that moment of prayer. You know, Donald Trump understood that, and it was one of the nicest things he did. One of the most important things he did was call for a day of prayer early in the coronavirus pandemic. The left, they didn't want to listen. They didn't listen. But we need that that shared 
ritual to be able to function again, I think, as a society. And I think we're not alone. I think many others around the world are, are, are suffering this sense of disunity and lack of leadership. I think prayer is part of expressing our basic values, but also expressing a clear sense of who we are, of our small place in the universe, which I think puts into perspective all the troubles we have and reminds us we need to work with one another, even if we don't like each other. We need to work with one another. We can't run this country down. We can't trash its independence. We have to admit and acknowledge those common things that allow us to be free and prosperous. And I think if we can restore some of that to public life, I think we can move ahead. I agree. And when you talk about the tragedy in Highland Park, it, you know, it's also important to remember that in the 80s, uh, under the Reagan administration, a budget cutback on mental institutions and health, mental health care uh, was, a, some argue, uh, the incipient point for these horrific uh, tragedies that have befallen this country. There is cause and effect. Uh, these consequences perhaps were not uh, unforeseen uh, by all, but they should have been at least uh, taken into account some 10 years later. But here we are in 2022, and people do not want to talk about public uh, mental health and the importance of it with all of our uh, institutions, uh, whether it be uh, in education, uh, whether it be uh, with our municipalities. We have to do better uh, for those who are uh, in desperate need of uh, mental health uh, assistance uh, and support. Uh, Joel, with that, I want to just say thank you so much. Uh, it is good to have you back on uh, Terra America. Uh, we appreciate you being with us as always. God bless you. God bless you too, Lou. Joel Pollack, Great American. Thanks, everybody, for being with us today. Tomorrow, our guest will be former Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan on the crisis at the Mexico border and why the Biden White House is only making it worse. Please join us tomorrow right here on The Great America Show. Till then, God bless you and God bless America.